0: Welcome to a podcast of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Today's episode is sponsored by the Foundation for Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy, which is committed to advocating for excellence in OMPT practice through its funding for initiatives in fellowship training, education, research, and public recognition. The Foundation for Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy is a 501c3 organization, and all contributions are tax deductible. Donations can be made at our website a a o m p t.org backslash foundation. This podcast series will feature interviews with content experts and manual therapy.
1: Hi, this is Skip Gill hosting today's podcast and joining us today is Dr. Phil Sizer on the topic of pain management and innovation. Dr. Sizer is an endowed professor in pain science and a President's Distinguished Professor at the Texas Tech University's Health Science Center in Lubbock, Texas, with over 38 years of clinical experience. Phil currently serves as the Associate Vice President for Research Innovation at the Texas Tech University Health Science Center. Where he leads a division to support the innovation, collaboration, and translation of researchers' discoveries from idea to impact. Phil is the co founder of the Matador UAS Consortium that works with over 30 industry partners in leveraging commercial drones to support healthcare delivery. As an innovation mentor, he serves as a National Science Foundation regional I instructor and National I-Corps Industry Mentor, as well as a Texas Tech University Accelerator Program Mentor. He has recently been appointed as the Acting CEO of the Texas Tech Research Park Incorporated, which is a 501C that is building and managing newly forming Innovation District as the epicenter of engagement between the Texas Tech Systems Universities and the private sector. Aim to advance economic development across the region. Phil continues to serve as the senior faculty in the SCD program in rehab science, the PhD program in rehab science, the Medical Pain Fellowship, and the physical medicine rehab residency programs at Texas Tech. He has coordinated or instructed in over 250 graduate course deliveries, and lectured at over 500 national and international courses and conferences. Fills a senior researcher with research interests that include sensory motor control and the functional biomechanics of the spine and extremities as they apply to musculoskeletal injury, also functional movement screening, and clinical pathoanatomy as it relates to patient diagnosis and management planning. He has co-authored over 150 peer-reviewed articles, commentaries, and book chapters, as well as over 200 research platform and poster presentations. Phil has received over 20 research awards and over 12 teaching awards at the local, state, and national level. It's so nice to have you here today, Phil. Uh, Thank you for joining us.
2: Yep, thanks for the invite. I'm really excited to be here, and it's great to catch up with you. And, uh, share some ideas and get people thinking. Uh,
1: Well, let's start out with, um, you know, you've had a distinguished career in practice teaching and uh, research expertise, um, you know, in the area of pain mechanisms and pain management. What was it early in your career that interested you in this specialization pathway? And, you know, dare I say that I think most people are intimidated by chronic pain patients, but instead you seem to have run right to this.
2: That's a really great question. It started back in as early as the mid to late 80s. As I was growing as a manual therapist, I was taking courses from great leaders teaching me that craft. And I was also studying central motor control in graduate school. And at that time, there wasn't a single article that addressed successfully addressed sensory motor controls of science related to musculoskeletal management. It was really focused on, on uh, neuro-rehabilitation. It wasn't until the mid-'90s, Scott Lepphart and then later Paul Hodges and his colleagues started trickling that into the science. While I was gaining all these skills, I was using to treat patients, and uh, I was getting these patients from the uh, newly formed uh, pain intervention department here at Health Science Center which was led by Gabor Rax. And Dr. Gabor Racks ended up being a, a seminal trendsetter in medical pain management. He invented a lot of stuff. He was instrumental in forming the IASP and also in the World Institute of Pain. And uh, I was spending time with him getting his really difficult patients, and everything I thought would work with those patients didn't. And it was really frustrating to me. So I began to spend more time with Dr. Rax and his crew. And at that time, there was no science explaining why these patients were different. These, what we know now are nociplastic pain patients. So I was, I was uh, learning all these things from him. And he was 20 years ahead of his time, learning how to talk to his patients, creating trust, building relationships. And he told me, he said, uh, Mr. Sizer, at the time I went not PhD, I said, Mr. Sizer, I don't want you to worry about treating their pain. I want you to get my patients moving that 's what he told me in his thick Hungarian accent, and at the time i didn 't have the ears to hear it. I was still trying to make conventional things that I knew would work with our you know our, uh, our recurrent noceptive patients or our acute patients that would work with those people, and it wasn 't working with this caseload and so it took me a while to begin to understand how it worked, and I began to uh, spend time learning from scientists that were just spawning discoveries in you know, neurotransmitter level and at this, the micro uh, microtissue level, what was going on with these patients, it began to inform me about it. And then we started to see some studies to help us understand it. But it was it was an evolution and not a revolution. I had to to go through it and skin my knees a lot with those patients and get frustrated like everybody else did before I began to understand how to treat those patients.
1: Sure, yeah, what what a what a great background and I guess fast forward to now, you know, and I think we've become, you know, much better aware of progress in this area of uh, pain science and, uh, and really the difference between acute pain and chronic pain. While I think the research and maybe our curriculum have evolved, um, you know, I guess could be argued that from a practice perspective, many PTs or medical providers are still stuck in the acute pain management so could you maybe talk a little bit about the basics of the chronic pain science and how maybe you encourage providers to change their practice if they're not already integrating that model?
2: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I want to say is we're surrounded by champions in this. There are some, it, Whereas we were scarce on research that helps inform this before, now we're surrounded by a rich treasure around us with research that helps us understand all the different aspects we need to understand as clinicians to inform us in better ways to treat these patients. We have great science that started with Alan Bassbaum and colleagues back in the mid to late 90s to understand the neurophysiology of changes in the system. Uh, We've learned tremendous things about behavioral changes that come from those same nociplastic adaptations of sensitization processes in the higher centers that create adaptation to other parts of neurological function. And we've learned tremendous things from our, our practitioner champions that have learned how to better treat these patients. And so what I've learned to do with these people who are frustrated with it, and I, you know, we're, we're surrounded by them, is to begin by showing empathy with those clinicians. What do we know? We know that patients' uh, success in, re- in their recovery process in this is based first on the clinician's confidence in what they do, the patient's trust in that clinician and the relationship that forms. So much of their recovery uh, will be influenced by that. And so I find the same with clinicians in their adaptation I've got to build trust with them so they they can begin to emerge out of their frustration. So I first share that I understand their frustration with it and that I went through it because I think that gives them, it reduces the mystery they face in trying to treat these patients. That's the first thing I do is just talk to them that way. And then I start thinking in practical terms to learn, to share some of the things that have worked for me, whether it be on the behavioral level, on the, management strategy level, on the examination level, whatever has become successful for me, I share some of those things with them and I invite them to learn more. I don't rush them with all this information and papers and all those things that you and I love to dig deep into. I start out and and do it gently with them so that they they feel uh, confidence in what they're learning at that time. More is not always better. So I start with little bits, just like we do with our chronic nociplastic patients, suggesting we need little victories with them. I do the same thing with clinicians where I start out and give them little victories in learning how to do this. And from there, I invite them as they become more confident to learn more. And then I share with them great resources. Great clinician researchers and clinician teachers that can help them to gather momentum on how to treat those patients. And then also, if they want a textbook, sometimes people want to go to the science, they want a great textbook. I share with them Kathleen Sluka's textbook. She's got a really great one in the ISP Press that's useful in spelling things out very clearly. It's in great language. It gives practical examples and also speaks to the science behind what we're doing. And then I encourage them to recognize ultimately we want to know many times more than what we're going to share with our patients so we can gain confidence and mastery over the information and the skill sets. So we can pick and choose from those things based on the starting point that the patient engages with us with, because that starting point is going to differ from patient to patient. So the more skills I have, the more information I have, I I have now a menu I can choose from to help engage the patient carefully and appropriately for where they start. Thanks, Phil, for sharing those
1: strategies. And so I wanted to continue on kind of the, um, that topic maybe about trust, because, you know, in your practice, I know you see a lot of patients that have probably failed other conservative managements, or maybe even sometimes invasive treatments. And so, you know, most have a low level of trust in the medical system at this point. Um, I'm just wondering what strategies do you use to help build that therapeutic alliance, you know, when it seems like you're already starting from behind?
2: Right, that's a really great question. We all struggle with that when the patient comes in the clinic because those nociplastic pain patients, those people who are sensitized, they come with loaded baggage. I mean, they've been many times to many different practitioners, and they've uh, ha- experienced people that don't trust them or, or uh, think they're faking or think they're exaggerating or that they have a, a, some kind of mental issue. I mean, there's all these things, uh, all these ways these patients get labeled. And so by the time they reach us, uh, they've got their radar up. They're expecting me to not trust them. They're expecting me to draw conclusions that are not accurate. They're expecting me to discredit what they say because they've experienced that with their healthcare providers. And so the first thing I like to do is get them to come in the clinic and begin to recalibrate them from a pain language to a recovery language. They'll fill out their forms we need out front for that first day. And that first day many times is just focused on their history. I hear so many clinicians tell me they have these long histories and all I get through is their history. Well, it's a great time to establish trust. And in resonating, they begin to learn that I'm authentic in my concern and that I want to spend time with them to help them navigate this challenge. And so I use a variety of different questions that are open-ended to try and understand their problem better. And when they veer off, start talking about things or even catastrophizing or even uh, showing uh, signs of anxiety or what have you, I listen and I comfort them and uh, give them the chance to feel an open dialogue with me. I'll make sure in that first visit I focus on a couple things. First of all, I give them an internal narrative and allow them to imagine things. Their first assignment is to just go home and begin to listen to their own voice saying somehow, Somewhere with someone I'm going to begin to recover somehow somewhere with someone I'm going to begin to recover and I tell them that might be me that might be here with me, but somehow somewhere with someone you're going to begin to recover and let that be one of their internal mantras and I even asked them on some to take a dry erase marker and write it on their mirror at eye level. In their bathroom. So every time in the morning they see somehow, somewhere with someone to remind them of that first thing in the morning that recovery is on the horizon. Whatever that means. The second thing I ask them to do is to imagine that they can move without their current symptoms. The way I do that, I say, what I want you to do is go home and imagine three things that you would like to do that you can't do right now. Because of your condition, because of your of your symptoms. And uh, you'll notice I don't say pain because of your, or I might even say because of your challenge. And they'll say, oh, I got 20. There are 20 things I wish I could do. I said, that's great, but let's talk about three. Because uh, what I want them to do is look at that the thing that comes first to mind, the thing that rises to the top. And we're going to use that later on in navigating their recovery. But right now, I want them to go home and then imagine doing one of those things five minutes a day. Imagine doing one of those things in their mind and imagine what their body would feel like doing it without symptoms. I can't tell you many times, like, for example, they can't raise their shoulder over 40 degrees because of their, their complex symptoms. I'll ask them to do that. They come back the next time after just imagining raising your arm overhead with no symptoms. What would it feel like in their body to hold their arm over their head without symptoms? They come back with a a 50% improvement in their movement, having done nothing else with me, but uh, exercise imagery. So I get them to do that at home. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty powerful. And what they'll do is uh, they'll work on just one of those things each day before the next time I see them. And then we'll use those same events help them begin to improve using uh, graded exposures and using little victories to get them to to be able to do those things again but in that first day i just get their brain around recovery
1: yeah no i mean it's nice to hear some 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 broad strategies some but some very specific strategies as well so I to see if you could maybe talk to me a little bit about how you uh, integrate manual therapy in a chronic pain management approach. So I'm thinking along the lines of maybe technique selection uh, and dosing. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. So, you know, since we're likely targeting central mechanisms and maybe have fewer well-defined or specific physical impairments... Right. Uh, what techniques or approaches do you find to be most effective?
2: That's a really great question. If you'll allow me to, Skip, I'm going to step back one step and talk a little bit about my management goals with these patients. I think that's going to help understand why and how I might use manual therapy. Yeah, sure. My, my goals for these patients include information for mind and body. I use uh, pain neuroscience education inform their mind and we use various different strategies to inform their body about where it is in space. So often they have this reported uh, out-of-body experience. You know, they, because they've lost their proprioception and all these other things uh, that are important for informing the person about where their body is in movement, they lose that. And so we need to inform their body. The next ch- uh, uh, goal is going to be desensitization. And there's all kinds of great uh, literature out there on ways that we can desensitize. And because of time, I won't go into all those things. Certainly a lot to talk about in that area. But I use strategies to desensitize the patient. Next, general activation. Michael Shacklock told us, not so important what they do is that they do something, that they move. Remember in, my, in the early stage of this conversation, uh, Gabor Rax was right. He said many years ago, get my patients moving. And I didn't understand it fully back then, what it meant. But I'm going to get the patient to move. I'm going to get them to generate activity and something they like to do that will give them a greater confidence in movement and also get them reactivated. And finally, help them turn the corner on their disability. Whatever limits they have in their functional abilities and their functional engagement, I help them return to that in an incremental way where they can begin to gain confidence in using their body again. What you'll notice is missing from my goals is reduce their pain. It may be that we can. We may be able to do things that reduce their pain, and that's a bonus, but I don't make that one of my goals because we've got other strategies that we can lean on, whether it be medical pain management or medical pain intervention and our pain neuroscience education. Those things can help reduce their symptoms based on the various uh, mechanisms that we're more aware of now but I don't make that one of my principal goals. If we get a change in their pain, it's a bonus. What's the one thing that laces all those things together? It's movement. Movement informs the mind and it informs the body. Movement desensitizes. Lots of literature that supports that now. Movement is the essence of general activations, getting the patient moving again. And movement helps patients grow confident in turning the corner on their disability. So in order to do that, I see my patient as a sailboat. As they sail along in their healthy life, they're going towards a destination and they encounter a trigger or an experience that gives them a painful condition and it sets them off course. And we understand that many times that triggering event doesn't become the ultimate event they experience with nociplastic pain, but it'll set them off course. The longer they have their symptoms, the further they drift off course. The more sensitized their nervous system is, the rougher or choppier the waters, so here we've got this patient's off course, and we got to get them back on course. So the way I see it is, first got to get them pointed in the right direction. i got to give them the potential to move. And for me, manual therapy is a tool to do that. It's the rudder on the ship. It turns the, the sailboat back in the right direction so they have the capacity or the potential to move. So I use manual therapy to re- return their capacity to move. I reduce their movement their are tissue dysfunctions that are limiting their ability to move. Why? Because many times, having drifted off course for weeks or months, they get an adaptive change in their ability to move. Then, sensor motor control is this wind in the sails. It's what empowers their movement back to their destination, back to their recovery. And then pain neuroscience education and or medical pain intervention, those two strategies calm the waters. If I just do manual therapy, it gives them the potential to move, but they don't move. They don't get moving. If I only give them sensory motor control, they move perhaps in the wrong direction because they're moving on a physically dysfunctional system. If I give them pain neuroscience education and or I have my colleagues uh, engage with them with uh, medical pain intervention, then they feel better at least temporarily, but it's not ensuring their function. So we say those things being done together is the best combination. And so strategies that I use with them will be the strategies that will address their uh, soft tissue dysfunctions around a a joint motion system, their myofascial system, even strategies that we can use to help regain nerve mobility in its container. All right. I'll use those things. If they get a positive pain response, then it's a bonus. But I'll use those strategies to help gain the capacity to move. And along the same, what I will also do is do it in small doses. I don't uh, just charge in because often their nervous system is very sensitized and they don't tolerate it very well. So I'll start out in little bits and back it up with incremental movement strategies that will use the motion I give back to them. And it's going to depend on where the problem is and that's going to help me identify in that quarter, in that part of the body where we need to address it. But if I find a dysfunction, I will treat it because often they'll have dysfunctions all up and down the quarter where their problem started. So I really make motion, the capacity to move, my priority, and and then hope for a pain response.
1: Yeah, and so um, one of the things that you you talked about there was kind of the, the modification of your dosing, uh, maybe mm-hmm. little increments. Kind mm-hmm. of any other strategies because you know it seems like probably people are approaching people. Uh, with patients, you know, from that acute pain management mm-hmm. um, kind of model, and yeah. I think a lot of the information we have on dosing comes from that. So, maybe what other things do you think about?
2: That's a great question. Uh, another thing I think about is going to be uh, location, and it's not that I'm going to only address the area where the problem started, but work all around it. For example, if I were, if I have a patient with challenges in their upper extremity, I might start in their thoracic spine in order to give gentle input into the autonomic nervous system, as well as get, help them gain confidence in moving that area prior to working on the actual area where the problem started. And then I'm going to also work towards giving them maybe a greater frequency of them coming in to see me to work on that and then follow it up with movement strategies that they can use at home. I hope I'm answering your question. Yeah. We all have different strategies or different techniques we use in the area, and I'm I'm gonna use the ones I'm comfortable with. I don't I'm not convinced that one strategy is better than another. It's just that they're getting input into the nervous system by giving input into those other parts of the motion system.
1: Great. One of the things I'd I'd like to ask you is just to to change the topic just a little bit, maybe you could give me a, a little bit of insight about your role right now working in a research innovation yeah. and um, you know, maybe are there particular medical technologies that you're focusing on or are you kind of more in the discovery mode or more in the translation, you know, end of the spectrum.
2: Right. Uh, that's a really great question. My role is helping people translate their ideas, their, their ideas and their discoveries from ideation all the way out to impact I have a a division in the university that I work with, and we have a group of people that work in our division. And what we do is we address all the way from the early ideation all the way out to launch of that idea. What we mean by impact is finding a successful way to take their discovery and translate it into a commercializable entity. It could be a device, a diagnostic model, um, a process. It can be a variety of different Entities, And we take it through commercialization, which can include protecting their intellectual property, as well as validating their customer, validating their their product, using experimentation to validate it, that it actually does what they say it will do, and validating the market, creating a test market where we actually see if it has the impact they claim it will have. And then from there, helping them build a business structure around their idea. And accelerating that business structure to one or more different launch pads. One launch pad could be creating an entrepreneurial business structure around it that they launch as a business and then scale with the right funding and the right opportunities to grow it. That's one possibility. Another possibility would be to help that person find the right industry partners to help capture that technology or that idea. And then they work with the industry partner that already has equity, already has resources to launch that, that technology. And then the, the third launching pad could be exit and license, where uh, we, we uh, work with our Office of Research Commercialization to then uh, launch that idea with another company that licenses it from the university and provides royalties for their earnings from that technology. And our, our uh, university has a very generous model for incentivizing people to do that. And so there's all kinds of interesting steps in this. We help them pre-incubate at the university. We then also bridge them to our innovation hub where they can engage in more than 14 different programs that can take them all the way from ideation through acceleration. My colleagues and I serve as mentors in those programs to help move people along through that process. And then we also work to help them link up with either investors and or with industry partners that can help them carry it to the next step. and We have some really great resources around us, great collaborations, great connections that we can get them hooked up into that process.
1: That's great. And uh, hopefully if there's folks that are, that are out there that are um, thinking along the lines of any types of these innovations, hopefully that encourages them and, uh, and they know that there's, there's a process they can go through, maybe some of those folks mm-hmm. can reach out to you. Well, let me
2: say a couple things about this, too, that we help people in this process. Our inventors often enter in the process using the same strategies they did to succeed in their education and career development. And that asks them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and solve the problem. It's uh, noble. It's the thing that helped us become who we are. However, what we've learned in this experience is that rather than doing that, we encourage them to collaborate. Often, for example, I'll work with a physician that says, I really have this idea for an app, but i got to first go out and learn how to program, write the programming on it. No, they don't. Let's get them with a partner that they can share equity with that will help them do that faster. Because what wins in this game is speed. And the longer people take to do it, the less likely they're going to succeed. So we want to get them out moving. And we galvanize teams around them with different uh, professions to help them reach that. That's one thing I want to mention. And secondly, what we've learned, even with our people who are successfully funded at multiple levels in their research, that the traditional research funding models that we're so accustomed to, those models are shrinking in their availability of funds. And our federal agencies are turning their attention on how to connect what they're doing with industry, how to actually increase the availability of what they're doing to the hands of the public. And so while these uh, traditional funding models are decreasing, the um, innovation funding models are increasing, and we are getting our colleagues to uh, rethink the end goal or the milestone For their discoveries and doing that, getting them more accustomed or more comfortable with the uncomfortable proposition of navigating their discoveries through innovation and acceleration. And so to do that, we build uh, teams around them and also stand by them. Same thing we we're talking about earlier in terms of developing a trust with these nociplastic pain patients. We do the same thing here with these inventors because they feel alone. So we've galvanized teams around them, of very competent collaborators take them through team building strategies to grow their idea and grow their capacity, and also stand next to them through all their stages to give them confidence in what they're doing and that they have a safety net around them. Hey, this has been a great conversation with you, Phil. Um, as we wrap up today,
1: uh, wondering if you have any final thoughts or maybe a key takeaway you'd, you'd like our listeners to remember You know, when they're dealing with their chronic pain patients.
2: Keep in mind, these patients often take a lot of our energy. So I say you as a clinician, pace yourself out and intersperse with those patients, patients who don't have those same challenging needs that we've been well exposed to and educated on in literature and in our experience. So pace yourself out so you can recharge your batteries and be available in an authentic way to these patients to stand next to them as they walk through their recovery process. That's one thing. The Mm -hmm. next thing I say is that Remember, you don't try and boil the ocean with these patients. Boil one cup of water at a time. And we have the chance to learn. That's the greatest thing about our experience in clinical practice is the capacity to learn. So always engage yourself in continued learning, both through the literature and through your developing your sound clinical reasoning with these patients, because you're going to learn things at work that aren't necessarily written about yet, and you can trust that based on your trust in your own experience. And so uh, we encourage clinicians to spend time learning. The learning never ends, and we have a chance to continually invest in our ability to treat these patients. Third thing is, just like I said with innovation, Network, work with other people, collaborate, Create study groups and or engagement groups with your colleagues to talk through your patients and think out loud with each other. Ten brains always work better than ten times one brain. And so you can go out and learn from one another and build that network of practitioners who can help you succeed with these patients. And remember to invest in learning with all these amazing giants or champions who have published great work and also shared their ideas about what works well with these patients. Today, my greatest uh, encouragement is not about the details of what you do, but it's where to go to learn more. That's going to be the most important part. And hats off to all those great people who have invested their career in helping us do it better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Those are great insights for us to remember. And uh, that will wrap us up for today. So um, thank you again, Phil. And thank you everybody for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure. And thanks for having me. And I look forward to engaging with you again. Take care
0: this has been a production by the foundation for orthopedic manual physical therapy in support of aaompt you can learn more about the foundation for ompt as well as make tax deductible donations on our website at aaompt.org foundation The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the official positions of the Foundation or AAOMPT. The information provided should not be used for personal health care or clinical expert advice.